Using improvement science to improve safety or quality in healthcare can be tough, and it's really tough when you're confronted with resistance to change within your team or organization. Today's WIHI is all about understanding and overcoming that resistance, and we're proud to invite you to dig a little deeper and join us for the upcoming expedition, Psychology of Change, Tools and Framework. IHI expeditions are action-focused online training programs for teams. They run two to four months, and they focus on the issues that challenge healthcare professionals today. The Psychology of Change expedition will help you and your team build the adaptive leadership skills and tools needed to address the human side of change by grounding improvement work in authentic relationships and developing a growth mindset across improvement teams at your organization. The Psychology of Change expedition kicks off August 15th, and it's free for Passport members. For more information on how your organization can become a Passport member, visit IHI.org Passport. And for more information on the Psychology of Change expedition and all of our other expeditions, visit IHI.org expeditions. That's the last time I'll say expedition, I promise. Now here's WHI. I am Mike Britton, and I'm an editorial director here at IHI. I'll be filling in for regular host Madge Kaplan on today's show. For the past 30 years, IHI has worked with organizations around the world to improve health and healthcare through quality improvement grounded in large part by W. Edwards Deming's system of profound knowledge. And dedicated improvers consistently apply technical methods for appreciating systems, an understanding of variation, and theories of knowledge to achieve results. So, what often stands in the way of the adoption and spread of these meaningful improvements? Well, some breaking news, this just in, people are resistant to change. Of course, you know that. If you've ever led an improvement project or frankly tried to make a change of any kind, implementing a, a new process at work perhaps, or creating a new rule about TV with the kids at home, you've most certainly hit up against some resistance. Now, this isn't exactly a, a new concept or a, a new idea. Deming himself stressed the importance of psychology or the adaptive human side of change in the system of profound knowledge. But we, as an improvement movement, still have a lot of work to do to sharpen our thinking, vocabulary, and tools in this challenging domain. That's why the innovation team here at IHI has been advancing psychology of change ideas and methods to advance and accelerate successful, scalable, and sustainable improvement work. And that's what we'll focus on today in, an, in a WIHI we titled How to Make Change Happen, an introduction to IHI psychology of change framework. Today's WIHI panel, who we will meet in just a moment, include Kate Hilton, faculty at IHI, and senior consultant, Rethink Health, Alex Anderson, a research associate at IHI, and Dr. Michael Rose, who will talk about his experience using many of these change methods to spread the use and adoption of a surgical safety checklist at McLeod Regional Health Center in Florence, South Carolina. For those who are new to WIHI, welcome. This is the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's online audio talk show, which we offer live and after the show via IHI.org and iTunes. On this program, we lean into cutting-edge innovation and bold ideas that are improving health and healthcare around the world. How to make change happen to improve our systems, to improve our daily work, and to improve care for patients most certainly falls into that category. We welcome uh, tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweet so we can capture the conversation on social media and engage with other followers. Now, let's go ahead and meet our expert panelists. 
First, calling in from uh, lovely New Hampshire today, Kate Hilton, a founding director and senior consultant at Rethink Health, where she teaches organizing and leadership skills to quality improvers in a five-year project with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She is lead faculty of the IHI's Change Agent Network, an online program, Leadership and Organizing for Change, and a faculty advisor to the Open School. She also serves as an engagement advisor to the 100 Million Healthier Lives Implementation Team and as faculty in scale and the age-friendly health systems effort. In addition, Kate is faculty in the Leaders for Health Equity Fellowship at George Washington University and in the Rockefeller Leadership Fellows in Management and Leadership Development Programs at Dartmouth College. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everyone. Pleased to be with you. Excellent. Glad to have you, Kate. Uh, Alex Anderson, sitting across from me here in our lovely office in Boston, is a research associate with IHI's innovation team, a founder of IHI's Diversity and Inclusion Council, and a lead of IHI's internal equity team. His innovation work focuses on identifying solutions to problems involving disparate segments of complex systems. Alex also works to improve IHI's operations, processes, and culture to increase equity for all staff. He received a BA in economics from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he, his studies concentrated on business and public policy, as well as operations information management systems. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Excellent. And, and then last, calling in from sunny South Carolina, Dr. Michael Rose is a practicing anesthesiologist and the vice president of surgical services at McLeod Regional Medical Center in Florence, South Carolina. He is a member of the senior leadership team for the McLeod Health System and serves on the Health System Board of Trustees. Dr. Rose has led the initiative to adapt the surgical safety checklist for surgical care at McLeod and introduced the public narrative leadership methodology to engage teams around core values, relationships, and human factors. He and his team are expanding the narrative approach to patients and their families. Dr. Rose also served as a chairman of the North Carolina Safe Surgery 2015 leadership team for the South Carolina Hospital Association, which is helping hospitals implement the checklist to prevent errors and to improve the safety of the 1 million South Carolinians having surgery and hospital procedures every year. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rose. Uh, good afternoon, and thanks for having me. Great. And with that, let's go ahead and get started. And what better way to start than, than with a story? So, so Dr. Rose, I'm going to come right back to you to tell us a little bit about your early work in trying to get the surgical safety checklist adopted at McLeod. Can you, can you walk us through those early steps? Sure. So I'll take a few minutes to describe the environmental context for the surgical improvement work at McLeod, and then touch on some of the dimensions and the complexity of change that we confronted. Because what began as an effort to comply with the mandated use of the surgical checklist became instead a pretty far-reaching effort with some steep challenges all involving change. There were change in process, change in behavior, and really even in the social structure of the surgical division. Uh, because we found very quickly that to deliver results, which were going to be um, measurable and sustained improvements to safety, quality, and the effectiveness of the care, we really had to meaningfully engage dozens of caregivers in what proved to require equal measures of social and process reengineering. So McLeod is a uh, tertiary community-based hospital 
uh, we are at the main, we're at the main campus for the regional health system. We have seven hospitals. We serve around a million patients over 15 counties in South and North Carolina. We're a level three trauma center and our surgical division performs about 18,000 cases annually. So the environmental context, in 2008, there was intense public scrutiny around safety and surgery, specifically around mistakes, particularly those like wrong site surgery that were viewed to be entirely preventable. So there was a safety imperative to eliminate these never events and lower mortality rates, reduce complications, but also a high stakes regulatory and compliance focus that uh, caused us to have to exert a pretty aggressive top-down implementation by the hospitals. Just didn't have much wiggle room on either the form or the pace. And like many organizations, we had difficulty hitting the mark on our performance. And compared with other change efforts, this one was definitely harder. We absolutely had passionate innovators and early adopters, but we just couldn't reach the, the full early adopter tipping point. And it wasn't just passive resistance that we, we felt. It was more like an active insurgency. Uh, so here we had this common sense and proven tool. It was mandated for use have been used to great effect in other industries. And it really raised the question, why would this be such a struggle? So we had what we thought were three broad challenges to the execution. They were technical, behavioral, and social. And I'll give uh, an example of each. First, the technical one, uh, which, which was consensus around the uh, construction of the checklist. It seems straightforward enough uh, but most know that the uh, operating room is a high production environment. The teams there are dealing with continuous risk. Once surgery is in motion, there are nearly endless variables in play. And there's a real premium on airtime for team discussion and a pretty intense natural tendency for focus. And in the operating rooms, people are pretty hardwired to hone in on what matters. And so with this myriad of issues to consider, and the questions were around which elements should be chosen for the checklist. So when we push down the list and enforce that repetition 70 to 100 times a day, we anticipated that there would be pushback and the immediate and persistent questions about why were those elements chosen? Who chose them? Uh, or even why were they chosen? But what we hadn't recognized until we began to see, see it uh, emerge in dozens of debriefs and then hundreds of them, that the teams were regularly being thrust into a reactive posture by a highly variable, vast, and recurring array of defects. And even more confounding to this was that, that individuals on the team encountering 
some challenge in a case often had different perspectives of what could have been better or how. So that really touches on uh, a behavioral change that became a big challenge in this context. Um, you know, for all the right reasons and proven legitimacy from, uh, from the human factors experts, there, there are three hard stops required for the checklist during which four to eight people on that team have to commit to a formalized and meaningful conversation. But this is being dropped into an environment that represents, operating rooms truly do represent the epitome of parallel processing. And in large surgical programs with uh, an education mission like ours, uh, you may not even know all of the others in the room. Uh, so that influ influencing that set of behaviors around formalized, meaningful conversations in, in that setting, a real challenge, which finally gets us to the social challenge. In the operating room, all kinds of power hierarchies. Uh, there's implacable autonomy there. Uh, there's normalization of chaos. That's all on the backdrop. And here we had this clear evidence that we, sh we were short of ideal and that change was essential to improve our performance uh, and, in, and the character of our workplace, what it was like to deliver care in our, in our operating rooms. And, and here we were dropping in a force solution. It was one that had a lot of hope and promise, but it, it really in this array that I described seemed to leave us lacking clarity in the purpose, a shared understanding of what problem exactly was it we were trying to solve and certainly left us with this um, inability to get uh, mutual commitment to a, a path forward. So for the launch and then over several months, we leveraged every tried and true tool set that, that we had or we knew, posters, meetings, internal marketing, along with a hedge of dropping observers into the operating room to help manage the compliance aspect of it. And each one of those had some impact, certainly, but was not sustained. And our rates of compliance just hovered in the 30s. And that's when we turned to help from the innovations team. That's great. Thank you for setting the scene for us, Dr. Rose. That's uh, it's really interesting. And we're going to come back to that story in just a few minutes to kind of to hear how things resolved. Uh, for now, though, I'm going to turn things over to Kate and Alex to talk about the work they've been doing in the past year, this idea of the psychology of change. So, uh, Alex, I'm going to turn to you first. Can you tell us a bit about the work you've been doing and, and make sure that you share that framework? I know you guys have been testing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Michael. And, and, and thanks, Mike. And hopefully for our listeners, um, Dr. Rosa's story sounds familiar in, from the, for the abstract elements of it. Hopefully you've all worked, or not hopefully, but I'm sure many of you have worked on improvement projects in your own working environment where the problem was very clear and there was a lot of understanding of what the, the right solutions were with, with evidence behind those solutions um, and a pretty good sense from a handful of folks, whether they were leaders or team leaders, on how to move this forward. And yet when you get to the point of trying to 
implement the changes and get results, you you run into common barriers to change. And we heard a lot of those barriers um, with Dr. Rose's Rose's story. And, and what we find in IHI's, you know, 30 years of quality improvement projects, this happens all the time. There are constant similarities around the barriers to change, whether that's a power struggle between the different individuals on the team or even teams within the organization. Um, it might be um, a culture of fear, a fear of failure, a fear of being wrong, a fear of messing up and not getting results too quickly. Um, oftentimes, just maintaining the motivation. People already feel like they have a lot of work on their plates um, and taking on a new thing, a new project feels like an extra burden and doesn't get to the core of, of what they're thinking about, what brought them to the work, what what motivates them to, to make improvements um, in the activities that they do. Um, and, and Ronald Heifetz, who's a kind of organizational theory thinker, um, talks about, you know, the adaptive challenges that organizations face um, really require new attitudes and competencies and coordinations of people. Not of necessarily technical systems or of, you know, a leadership approach, but actually getting to the heart of what motivates and drives drives people. And, and that's really where the psychology of change work um, has has taken us. And, and Kate and I have been working working on this framework to understand how, how we can take that psychology, take those, you know, human side of change, understand how they address the barriers um, and get us to maybe a faster speed, speed of change. And so, uh, Kate, I would love to hear a little bit uh, about, about that. Sure, thanks. Uh, you know, as Mike had noted, um, they just couldn't get past the chasm between the early adopters and the early majority. And as you noted, Alex, we see this uh, quite often in terms of adoption of evidence-based innovation and improvement. And so, um, you know, what we're seeing, of course, is that the innovators and the early adopters are more comfortable with emergence and uncertainty, discovery and experimentation failing forward, and they have what we call this growth mindset. You can hear it the way Dr. Rose speaks, and that's based on a belief that our basic qualities are things that can be cultivated with effort and experience, that people with a growth mindset would seek a stretch experience or an improvement in healthcare or uh, look to friends and colleagues to help you grow or work on getting better. And then in contrast, those with a fixed mindset, which you may see more often among the late majority of the laggards, and of course, we can all hold a growth and fixed mindset at the same time on different issues, right? So this isn't to say that everyone's one way or another, but around particular issues, you may see the late majority and the laggards um, hide deficiencies out of fear or try to, you know, prove how great they are or look for friends and colleagues who can, you know, shore up their self-esteem. And um, and that's often why the late majority waits for the early majority to adopt a new behavior. They're playing it safe. And so a lot of improvement work uh, starts with the innovators, the early adopters, and then we have to, we have to make that shift. Um, just as Mike suggested, he was hovering at around 30% adoption. He needed to get that rest of that early majority on board to, to get enough momentum to move forward. And, um, and we need to figure out ways to address human psychology to create the necessary momentum um, to overcome the force of the status quo and those fixed mindsets. Um, and, and that's, you know, really with a focus on our people and understanding what happens with regard to people around change. Alex, maybe you can speak a little more to that. Yeah. And, and so as, as, um, we know from a lot of thinkers, whether it's Deming or Heifetz, as I mentioned earlier, you know, people are really integral to the, the pace of change and, um, the, the, the rate at which change happens is often completely dependent on your people. And so if you have folks, as you can see on the screen now, that are that are super into their 
they're present, being present in the work and, and feeling valued in the work, the change will happen more quickly because there's more buy-in. But if, if they're frustrated and angry, they'll have a higher degree of skepticism, a higher degree of resistance, and that becomes an important barrier that can really slow down work. And so we have to um, address that and we have to be cognizant of the reality that, that people are really the core element of how quickly we can make change happen and how effectively we can make change happen. So that means that all of us as improvers have to engage people with resistance because resistance, in fact, is a part of change. And so if you're encountering resistance as an improver, that means you're doing something right because, um, uh, you know, I come from a, a background in organizing, and we often talk about going for no, um, which m means recognizing that no doesn't mean never. It means sort of setting up performance standards around going for no because we we expect people to not say yes right away, that it might take time for them to come on board, or that um, uh, as things change, as the context changes, they're ready to say yes, or that we need to find a place where they're ready to say yes and move them what we call up this ladder of engagement to a place where they're on board with, with the improvement. And that also requires us to, um, to understand resistance. Uh, so we, we look to Rosa Beth Moss. Cantor, she helps us in this regard. She shares 10 reasons that people resist change. Um, loss of control, excess uncertainty, surprise, surprise, uh, everything seems different, um, loss of faith, concerns about competence, more work, ripple effects, past resentments. And uh, paired with Dr. Mark Sandin's work, uh, who also has studied the science behind resistance to change and the, the neuroscience behind it, he notes that resistance is the judgment that's made by the brain that the proposal for change threatens what we're currently doing. So that it's the judgment made by our brains that the proposal for change threatens what we're currently doing. And practically, that means resistance shows up in the form of our emotions or behavior is meant to impede change. And this can show up in a lot of faces. So when we're apathetic, that means we're feeling or showing little interest in the change. When we're hopeless, uh, we're feeling or showing little hope for a different outcome. Uh, we can, it can show up as self-doubt here. The, the you know, main concern is that our actions aren't enough to make a difference. Um, and it can show up as fear. And fear can be, well, of just about anything. It could be job loss, affect your reputation, you name it. And uh, it can also come, resistance can come in more subtle forms. So publicly acting in accord with uh, a surgical safety checklist, for example, while pri privately disagreeing with it, this can, this can often occur in compliance-based settings, and we face a lot of those in healthcare, um, and also a changing behavior as a result of a real or imagined group pressure. So that's known as conforming. And in these more subtle forms of resistance, there's typically a lack of agreement on purpose. So part of what Dr. Rose mentioned was um, that people needed to make meaningful use of the checklist, not just walk through the steps, but actually um, demonstrate that they, they didn't just buy in. They owned it. They owned it together that they shared it, that they had a shared purpose around using it, um, that they were going to be in sync, that it mattered to them, it mattered to the patient, rather than, oh, it's just one more thing we have to do. Um, so, so this is what we're talking about here. So, Alex, maybe you can get us started with the, um, the framework that we've put together around the psychology of change and how it works. Yeah, absolutely. 
So on the screen now is is the Psychology of Change framework that Kate and I and, uh, and a handful of others uh, at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement have developed over the last several months that really provides an overview for psychology pieces um, of, of how to you know take take an approach to the human side of change. And so as you can see, the, the core of this framework is about activating people's agency. And when we're talking about activating people's agency, we're really talking about um, enabling them to achieve the things they want to achieve with purpose. Um, and in, in order in order to do that, we have five practices, unleashing intrinsic motivation, co-producing an authentic relationship, distributing power, co-design with people-powered change, and adapting in action. And um, the the these five elements are, although they're presented in a ring, that, that that's for a reason, is that they, they are non-linear, they're mutually reinforcing. Um, there are tools and methods for each of these, uh, these pieces of the framework that can be taken on at different times. Um, but motivation is really about understanding what brings people to the table, what actually makes them happy to do their work, interested in doing their work. Co-producing an authentic relationship gets to the idea that, that you have to work together, you have to see see the people on the other side of the table as, as cord the work and focus on building your relationship to create that culture of safety um, and of, of innovation and of creativity. Um, distributing power, you know, is really about being aware of the inherent, you know, hierarchies within teams and working against those so we have a, a, a better a better um, opportunity to actually build relationship and unleash motivation. Co-designing people power change is really focusing on um, designing with our individual people and leveraging the, the assets that they bring to the table in order to design together. And finally, adapting in action is you know learning by doing, getting getting on the ground, hit, hit the ground running, make changes, don't be afraid to fail, and uh, learn from those failures. So it's you can see in the inner ring here that will ideas and learning in action is mentioned, which sounds familiar to IHI's typical will ideas and execution approach. But the the twist at the end is that we, we are getting away from that binary of pass-fail with execution and really focusing on learning over time um, and through that building our relationships together. Yeah, and as, as um, Alex mentioned, you know, agency is really at the center of this. So um, we think about agency at the heart of our psychology of framework as um, the ability of an individual to choose to act with purpose. Um, and so here, this ability stems from the relationship between power or one's ability to choose to act with purpose and courage, which is one's choosing to act. So it takes ability and choice to activate your agency or others' agencies. And we think about that on on, um, on three levels. Uh, these levels come from Deming himself. The first is the level of the self or an individual's agency to make his or her own free choices. Uh, the second is at the interpersonal level, um, which is, uh, you know, the collective agency of people acting together. And the third is at a system level. Uh, and here we mean the structures that would support the, the exercise of agency within and across institutions and organizations. Uh, so all of all of the various domains, if you um, look back at the, at the wheel that Alex described, are then um, intended to work in concert um, to help activate agency at these three levels. Again, activating people's power or ability to act combined with their choice, their actual voluntary, conscious, psychological choice um, to, to make, to take that action. And, um, and this framework comes from uh, a lot of 
various um, disciplines. It comes to us from um, uh, basically a crosswalk walk from the learnings of many fields, including quality improvement, of course, um, psychology, particularly psychologists uh, Edward Vesey and Richard Ryan, um, community organizing with a tremendous number of insights from Marshall Gann, uh, design thinking informed by IDEO and the Stanford School of Design, behavioral economics uh, based on the works of Richard Thaler and conversations with Catherine Milkman, um, transformational change, uh, you know, work and change management and learning organizations uh, from Peter Senge and John Cotter, um, John Kenya, Mark Kramer, co-production, uh, scaling up, our friends at the Billions Institute, Becky, Becky Margiota, Joe McCannon, uh, folks at Stanford, Robert Sutton. So this this whole discipline, uh, you know, there's so many different ways into the psychology of change, and I suspect everyone on, on the call has some place where they started with one of these other disciplines or fields, and that is okay. We are agnostic as to where to start. Um, what we did was sort of a, a crosswalk, and again, if, if we could go back to the slide, please, that had the, the wheel, we did a crosswalk of where the commonalities were across these different, thank you, these different approaches. And so you probably know something already about some areas of this um, framework, and that's an asset. That's an asset to you and your team. And, uh, you know, we encourage you to, to share that and to, to start there. And then you may also assess where you, you may need to learn some additional tools or, uh, you know, some different frameworks for thinking about how to address um, barriers that you're experiencing and ways to do that by distributing power or co-designing with the people who are, in fact, taking for the improvement or whose lives are affected as a result of the improvement or um, unleashing your people's intrinsic motivation along the way. Kate, so, um, Kate, Kate, thanks so much for all this. Yeah, I'll pause there. Yeah, thank you so much. This is Mike. Um, I want to get back to Dr. Rose here for the last five minutes of our sort of presentation here to, to talk about how to apply these sort of in real time and, and how that led to the success you saw uh, with the surgical checklist. So, so Dr. Rose, back to you. Yeah, and, um, and I'm struck by the, the agency and the choice, and, and um, Kate described the chasm, if you picture that uh, that diffusion of innovation curve, we had a big space between the early adopters and getting more people on, involved. And it's pretty clear to me now after on the look back that people crossing that, that chasm is a choice. And they make the choice for reasons that are highly individual. So on that on that wheel, the one that I'll just highlight that and what it looked like on our project, the application of it was around this, the unleashing of their intrinsic motivation. And there's a theory of, of the public narrative of using stories uh, as we talk to each other about working together or joining efforts that, 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 um, has one tell the reason why I'm going to involve myself in this project, why it might be something important to you, why would it be important to you, and why should we do this now um, so that we can build that thrust and momentum. And we used the debriefs um, significantly for in, in our public narrative because the debriefs were the opportunity for each surgical team at the end of a case, in their own words, with free free language, unedited, 
to tell us everything that happened in that case, the things that went well, the things that didn't go well, uh, the things that they that that were uh, adverse events, things that almost happened, and and then we shared those with the entire operating room group every day. We we shared them with our senior executives. We shared them with board members. Uh, we have three of our board members in the operating rooms, letting people know that we really wanted to hear these things because what those stories were telling us with with great impact was and as you heard the the first hundred the fir- the next hundred the next hundred after that is there was no doubt that we had important improvement work to do and, and that it was going to take a lot of people and it takes a lot of energy and putting these making this information highly transparent really granular just was the thrust to it but then you know the next part of it was um having people have some confidence, well, there was un- actually something we could do about it. Um, and and the way that looked in our case study is we would, we would go to individuals one by one by one. Uh, each of us would try to, to win over three or four or five colleagues and explain this is why we, we were jumping into this work or the things we were hoping to accomplish it, why we needed, why we thought we needed other people, and what are the things that'd be important to you. And, and, and we use this um, test with people. We, we say, what are the most important things to you that you see that we should change, improve, that we just can't fail on? And we pre-pop, and we asked them for three, and we pre-populated number one. Number one was always to do the best possible, uh, provide the best possible care for our patients with F number two and three blank. And what we found that was that there was huge dispersion in those, but really important dispersion in the following way, that for each of the, uh, clearly there was dispersion in individuals, but you could see in constituencies, really important ones. For the surgeons, time, uh, time pressures were paramount to them. Uh, the nurses, uh, were highly oriented around advocacy for the patients and their not only their medical well-being but their social well-being and and to the point where those two as key needs and motivation for joining the work could be in conflict you push harder and go faster it might cause somebody to have to give something up on um, advocacy for their patient or taking the extra time to assure that something does or doesn't happen. And, and so they, they both had to be considered and they both had, both had to be factored in. And of the managers and the executives clearly cost is of an enormous consequence in an operating room, extremely expensive environment. And, and that we had to factor in that. And so what it caused us to do as we understood what the intrinsic motivations of this broad team, what they were, was to make sure that in our focus of the checklist, the things that we measured and the priorities that we set, that they would attempt to accomplish those or achieve 
in all of those domains. And, and to me, had we not understood that and, and kept pushing down a, a pre-built list, I think we would have had people that did make the choice to jo join check out, and there'd be a lot of people that would never check in. And, and so that, that use of narrative and understanding what would motivate somebody to join an effort proved to be an important way for us to get people to, to jump over that chasm to the next point. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Rose, for sharing that. It's a, it's a great story, and congratulations on the, on the success. I, I want to make sure that we have time for a chat here. There's um, lots, of, lots of callers on the line, and I want to make sure they have a chance to chime in. Um, John, just really quickly, do you want to let folks know how they can um, enter their, their questions and comments in? Yeah, just make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the chat, and that way uh, you know, we can see it here in the studio, and uh, Kate and Dr. Rose can see it um, at home. Great. Thanks so much. And, you know, one of the points you just brought up, I'll, I'll start with a quick question that I had, uh, Dr. Rose. One of the points you brought up was about the time pressures, right? The, uh, and, and I think that might be probably resonate with a lot of listeners. The fact that, you know, uh, d does this work add a lot to the early stages of improvement work? So, so sharing a narrative, of course, is helpful, but, but doesn't that add time? So, so um, Dr. Rose, I want to turn to you first with your, with your thoughts on that. It, it absolutely adds time, and, and, but, uh, but making sure that for the time we invested to do this was offset in multiples, by the way, by time that we could save as a result of the conversation became one of the important strategies. It, 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 um, it, if you looked at the character of our debriefs and the things that people reported, the majority of those issues that people reported had to do with things that we could have known, should have known, had we known, would have had the right things at the right time in the right way. And, and at, at a rate of 15 or 20 percent of the cases were a defect of that type occurring, it wastes an enormous amount of time. And it's time that is public, publicly wasted for a team, and almost always associated with negative emotion. And so a lot of our early priority got focused on how do we make sure that we get the right information about the supply chain, implants, correct personnel, the right technology into the room effectively so that we could measurably alter the time in the operating room to give us some room for this other part of the conversation. And those things were connected. I, had we not worked on that and created the room for the conversation on some of the elements that were important to other people, I, I don't think it would have worked. That's great. And obviously, you know, it did work. If we can actually throw up the uh, outcome slide, John, just to show exactly did what happened, uh, exactly what happened in South Carolina, um, that would be great. And you know, the, this. So actually, let me stop here for a second, Doctor Rose. Let me just let you speak to this and run down the outcomes really quickly, just to kind of resolve um, where you guys have ended up. 
Yeah, so so by by category, um, if you heard that we attempted to balance the metrics so that the prime constituents would all feel that they were moving dots on things that mattered. So the clinicians, obviously, the the getting a good outcome, having the mortality rates improve, complication rates go down, incredibly important. And it, it took time, but you can see that with this effort on that mortality curve, we measurably dropped the surgical mortality. And, you know, in in the process of learning how to do that, what what we realized even more was that in order to have that happen, we had to touch people far upstream of the operating room and far downstream of it, which just brought more people to the effort, and which is important. And then the economic return, very, very important. Uh, discussions around the economics of the operating room and budgets can take an enormous amount of oxygen uh, out of the room uh, on the manager's time. And it was essential that part of the improvement work eliminate some of that wasted wasted time, wasted stuff. And and we got a big return there. Our, when we started, our labor hours per case was almost 20 hours, 20 hours of nurses, technicians, anesthesia to produce one case. And over this period of time, this first three years, we're able to drop that down to about 13 uh, and kept it there by eliminating just those recurring defects of that just wasted things, wasted things, wasted, wasted people's time. And, and so that helped drive part of the work because I think without a return, we would have been probably just confronted with other more aggressive changes to deal with the economics rather than the root cause. That's great. Thank you so much for that. And some really good comments and chats coming in. I just want to highlight the one uh, from Deborah saying the outcome is an outcome of the process, not just the checklist, and, and that being an important point. Um, and, and Dr. Rose, I'll, I want to let um, Alex and Kate chime in here in just a minute, but I, but I do want to come back to you uh, just once more with this question um, about uh, whether there had to be any sort of difficult conversations with CMO or other leader uh, at some point uh, for, for disruptors in the process. So could you speak to that for a minute? Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll use this one this one case example and, and the way that, that we, it, yes, those crucial conversations necessary. And I'll give you an example of one that occurred and how we took that on publicly. We had a rollover accident on I-95, which comes right through Florence. Uh, family members uh, traumatized. We had a three-year-old in the operating room, just horrendously injured. Three of our surgical teams filled the room to try to save that child's life. And so we diverted a lot of resources there uh, to work on, on taking, that taking care of that case, taking care of that patient, which weren't successful. So it was traumatic, that family traumatic for our caregivers. And one of the surgeons came in and he was one that was affected by the bumping that occurred uh, because those teams were diverted to that room. And in, in some public way, just sort of lashed out about the effect on time and 
we were taking time from his life he was never going to have back and so on. And, and the way we address that is we wrote a, a public letter of apology to our OR staff, uh, signed on by senior people, apologizing that in the setting of an event like that, that, that they staff had to be confronted with somebody's anger over time. And, and, in, and so in this environment, we would see in debriefs like that one um, reports of this behavior or that behavior where, where someone's priority that might have been contrary to the overall values of the people on the team were challenged. And, and they had to be swatted back in that way. And they had to be done publicly um, so that the words that we were talking about of things we want to achieve matched the actions. That's great. Thank you. Great answer. I, I see psychological safety coming up quite a bit here. And, and Kate and Alex, I'd like to turn over to you uh, to share your thoughts. So, so this issue, uh, how to address the issue of psychological safety and, and flattening uh, the authority gradient to enhance teamwork, right? So, so really interesting concept, a, lo a lot to unpack there. Um, Alex, why don't we go with you first, and then Kate, I'd love you to chime in. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so one of the key elements of our psychology of change framework really focuses on that, that relationship building and that power distribution. And the thing that's difficult, I think, for a lot of organizations and a lot of teams is real relationship building does take time. And, this, and Dr. Rose was talking this a little, a little bit earlier. Time is an important resource, especially for, for overburdened teams. But putting in that time up front allows more efficient use of time later on later down the road. And so there's a handful of tools and methods that we've come across, um, including open and honest questions as part of our normal dialogues, um, and also, you know, intentional one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, there's another common tool um, called randomized coffee trials, where members of a team can be paired up to, to go out of the office to build a relationship over coffee. And in, in the workplace, relationships are, in the workplace are typically transactional. And when you have a transactional relationship, it, there's, there's inherent power dynamics. And the way to get beyond it is to, is to talk about it and to build that authentic relationship um, as frequently and as often as possible. Um, and and that's, that's the, kind of, the kind of thinking that the psychology frame framework brings the psychology of change framework brings forward um and and that's not necessarily easy and that and and is not necessarily a quick and, and um fast process it's it's something that requires um intentional thinking it requires vulnerability and openness um but the the way that it can pay off in the long run for the project is is very successful um kate what are your thoughts on that yeah thanks alex and and maybe we could move to the slide that shows the snowflake i think this also gets to the distribution of power which is one um, component of the domain that we're um, articulating in the psychology of change. So here you see, instead of um, your classic hierarchy organizationally, a different way of structuring power distributed across stakeholder groups, across teams, with an improvement. And in Dr. Rose's case, you hear him working with um, what he originally recruited was a, a, a diverse team that included the head of anesthesiology, uh, surgeons, uh, in fact, one of the trustees, as well as influentially, um, socially influential nurses and technicians, and inviting them together to practice narratives, to practice the one-to-ones, to practice these tools that we're discussing in this framework, uh, and then 
to build it out person by person. And so um, here, we're, as, as Karen noted, um, these are not transactional. You see these mutual um, arrows going in both ways. There is mutuality and exchange between people making commitments to one another around the use of the checklist. Um, but the, the, the work of the relationship is actually largely in storytelling and getting to the basis of transformational relationships, which require a values-based conversation, why we do this work in the first place. Uh, you know, what called us to the practice of medicine or nursing? Why, why are patients matter to us? And usually those are stories of ourselves. They're stories of people we love, people that influenced us, people that we lost. Um, and so Mike and his team would experience that and people would share stories uh, across um, these team members and some of the, you know, strategies that uh, Alex just described through one-to-ones, through having um, coffees together, et cetera. And they would um, around those values, then make these commitments to one another to use the checklist. And so you would see the snowflake grow person by person by person. And they were very intentional in using network mapping to recognize that folks had social influence over five or six different folks and that they would then ask them once they, they agreed to be a part of, you know, the surgical safety checklist leadership team. So this team started as, you know, five or six and became 50 to 500, you know, it, it grew as people committed, they then agreed to, to talk to other people that they knew and have intentional relational conversations with them about this. And folks were sharing things. They've worked for get together for 25 years that they, they didn't know about each other, right? So there was a whole secondary set of outcomes around joy and, um, uh, you know, uh, commitment to doing the work. And I wonder if we could get back, you know, we talk about in the Psychology of Change Framework improvement measures. And so it's, you know, it's nice to do this stuff, but actually it really matters to do this stuff. And part of that is because we want to, we want to measure the adoption rates and we want to measure the sustainability rates of this work. And those are two primary measures that our relational strategies can support us with. Um, and then of course there are secondary measures and increased joy and satisfaction from staff are critical. I was very fortunate to visit my halfway through this work um, with his group of OR nurses. And half of the room had participated and half didn't, and you could tell just by looking at their faces because those that had, where power had been distributed to them and where they felt both a sense of ownership in the OR using the checklist, but also a sense of leadership in engaging other staff to join them in this work, um, increased their joy and satisfaction. They were doing it because it mattered to them, so the discretionary effort was higher. And they had this sense of resiliency, of, of a sense of um, a lack of burnout, which, of course, you know, we are also addressing at IHI through our work and joy and work. Um, and so these are very interrelated. And so uh, I would just note that the distribution of power, the, you know, the relational work, the story work that's been described today, all of that um, is to an end, a very specific measurable end, and that's around adoption and sustainability. Thank you, Kate. Uh, thank you, Alex. Those are, those are great. Um, you know, Alex, when you were talking about the sort of the coffee conversations and, and some of these sort of just, uh, you know, um, you know ex extroverted activities, it, it just occurs to me that that's not everybody, right? Not everybody's personality is suited to these skills and practices. So are there ways that we can get better at them? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's not there's not a one right answer um, to that question. But I think for kind of the the introvert approach, I think there's a lot of, a, you know, a common tool of kind of personality and work style 
testing is, is becoming more and more popular in workplaces, whether that's Myers-Briggs or any of the other environments. But I think finding an avenue to allow people to identify the ways they like to work, the things that are valuable to them, and bring that forward um, is something that is super important for relationship building. And so it, it's, it is true. Randomized coffee trials doesn't work for everybody because not everybody wants to you know meet up with a stranger and, and head out uh, for a cup of coffee to build a relationship. Um, in the context of this work, though, we are typically thinking of teams that have a working history together and that there is some element, some background. I mean, if, if you're working with people every day, you have some form of relationship that typically has existed um, in, the, in the confines of, of the workplace in that transactional sense of, you know, I have my bucket of work, you have your bucket of work, I might rely on you for helping with, with my work and, and vice versa. Um, and I saw in the chat earlier, someone was asking, you know, what are other types of relationships aside from transactional? And as Kate mentioned earlier, you know, a transformational relationship is one where you really put in the work where there's a, a bi-directional, mutually reinforcing, uh, mutually growing um, approach to doing work. And I, I think a parallel to make that a little more um a little more tangible is that IHI, we've, we've talked about the conversation for medical providers and patients of moving from what's the matter to what matters to you. And when you're talking about the what's the matter approach, that's a transactional question. I want to know what's wrong with you so I can diagnose it, make a recommendation, and hand that off. When you ask the question what matters to you, you're allowing the, the individual to bring their story forward, and then together you're figuring out, okay, how can we transform um, this given health situation in service of what matters to you. And and that's, again, not a, a A, B, C, one, two, three kind of approach. It's something that is um, amorphous like relationships are. And and that's that takes time, that takes energy, that takes intentionality. And it's also something that I think individuals get better with over time the more they practice it. Excellent. Uh, Kate or, or Mike I, I, uh, or Dr. Rose, I, I invite you to just add your thoughts to that as well. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, in terms of tools, we certainly have many of them. And again, some of them folks are already using. A lot of these are very common sense. So we, we, we certainly invite anyone on the call to join us in August. We'll be participating in a Psychology of Change Tools and Framework uh, virtual expedition. And what we'll be doing there is exploring both what we call sort of vertical learning, which is plumbing you for your own experiences you've already had with some of these domains and reflecting on that intentionally and using that as a place to ground um, the assets you've already got around doing this work based on your own lived experience. And part of it will be horizontal learning. We'll actually expose you to what we see as some of the highest leverage tools for improvers based on uh, the work of improvers like Dr. Rose, who have tested some of these tools in improvement settings. And we have seen uh, the direct outcomes of their use in uh, increasing adoption rates and sustainability of improvement over time. Um, so we'll be introducing you to some of these tools. For example, um, Dr. Rose shared public narrative. We'll be sharing um, how to make good use of that as one uh, tool in unleashing intrinsic motivation. And, and we'll uh, explore others as well. So we welcome you and we um, uh, thank you for listening today. And Dr. Rose, do you have anything else you'd like to add? And I, and I just uh, highlight and emphasize um, that that these the, the approaches of this wheel they they are not it's not linear and at at various phases of our work over time, which has occurred over years with many cycles and iterations, each of them each of these tools 
played an important role at an important time. That's great. Thank you so much for that. John, I want to turn it over to you just for a minute to talk about uh, an upcoming program that may be of interest to our listeners today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. So uh, if you've enjoyed this episode of WHI, we really encourage you to dig a little deeper into the uh, Psychology of Change framework uh, and join us at the upcoming expedition, Psychology of Change Tools and Framework. Uh, IHI expeditions are action-focused online training programs for teams, and they run from two to four months and focus on the issues that challenge healthcare professionals today. The Psychology of Change expedition will feature some of the guests you heard from and help you identify and address adaptive barriers to change, design and implement motivational improvement tactics, and, and really develop a growth mindset at across, uh, across improvement teams at your organization. Uh, the Psychology of Change expedition kicks off on August 15th, and it's, it's free for Passport members. For more information on this up- upcoming expedition, visit IHI.org slash expeditions. And for more information on how to become an IHI Passport member, visit IHI.org slash Passport. Thank you, John. Before we close things out, I want to give each of our panelists just about 60 seconds to throw a closing thought out there. I mean, so much that we explored in the last hour. Um, what is it that you want to leave our listeners with? And Alex, I'm, I'm looking at you across the room, so why don't you start us off? Thanks, Mike, and uh, thanks to Dr. Rose and, and to Kate for, for all the presentations today. I think that the the hardest thing to do in the psychology of change work is just to get started. And I think I just encourage all of our listeners to really review some of these these frameworks and um, the, the ideas behind them and find where's the right entry point. We've said a bunch of times that this isn't linear, and that's, and that's really true. If thinking about relationships is the, is the right place to start, start there. Start with a one-on-one meeting. Um, but there's so many opportunities to bring psychology of change forward to make improvement efforts more successful, um, that you, there's, there's a whole buffet of options. And so my, my encouragement is just to, to dive in. Excellent. Thank you. Helpful and succinct. Uh, Kate Hilton, let's turn to you. Thanks, Mike. I, I would just say that, um, you know, fundamental to all improvement work, as, uh, you know, W. Edwards Deming pointed out, is people. And uh, people being our fundamental source of value. And, and that takes expertise. So I would encourage people um, to both celebrate what they already do well relationally with others and, um, and also to, to recognize that it takes work to be really good at working with people around change. And there are, are basic skills that you can develop um, across a wide variety of disciplines to improve uh, at that aspect of the system of profound knowledge as it relates then, of course, to all others. Uh, so we, you know, we invite you to join us and we certainly support those listening and, and uh, working with others in improvement. Thanks, Kate. Dr. Rose, thanks again for sharing your story today. Uh, what would you leave our audience with? Oh, well, thank you all. And uh, I'd leave you this one point. This uh, One of the reviewers of the manuscript that we wrote uh, wrote back one of his criticisms was that the piece read more like a memoir than a science than scientific method. And after sort of swallowing that, then it made me think he's exact. I mean, but the, this work was exactly like a memoir because improvement work involving teams of people who have to have a, a, a shared result. And surgery is absolutely one of those things that take dozens of people to get a great result. That that it isn't just the technicalities, and the technicalities are important, the data analytics were very important, but but not without the social change and the relationships. Uh, there are too many connections that are needed, too many inputs to get the result to ignore those. 
great. Thank you so much. I, I only wish we had more time. Uh, so a big thank you to today's audience and to today's guest. Uh, WIHI will be back next week, same day, same time, Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern to discuss giving patients and families the tools they need to be health improvers. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today when you log off. Look for that option, and we'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey that will pop up. We want to know what worked for you today and how to continue to make WIHI a better program. Check out the archive pages for WIHI where you find an audio download of this program, plus all the resources posted by tomorrow. You can also find the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Subscribe under Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and if you like what you hear, we'd love for you to write a review on iTunes. You can always reach us with questions, concerns, or ideas at info at IHI.org. Thanks to the people who make WIHI possible, Matt Morse, Jesse McCall, John Gothier, Joanna Carmona, and the unflappable Vicki Minden. Thanks to that team, and thanks to all of you, again, for taking the time to join us today. We hope you enjoyed it. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I am Mike Britton. Wherever you are, have a great day.